Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. My name is Barry Brendan. I'm one of the adult ministry pastors here at Highlands. Now, imagine with me. You're just ushered in to what looks like a coal car, and you're at the entrance of a mine shaft. The car suddenly enters the mine shaft, and you're enveloped in darkness. But you have just enough light to see that that overhead is filled with cobwebs and huge spiders and creepy, crawly things all over the walls. A little ways further, there's bats. And a little ways further, there's snakes. I hate snakes. And just a little ways further, seconds later, out of nowhere, comes this huge boulder. It's a huge, it just almost fills the mine shaft, comes rolling right at you, and you think that your car is going to be crushed. And just at the instant it's about to make impact, it swerves and disappears. And you breathe a sigh of relief. And then in the distance, you see light uh, at the end of this shaft, at the end of this tunnel. And eventually, you actually exit the tunnel into broad daylight where you see other people with smiles on their faces and they're laughing. Where are you? Well, you are in Disneyland. (laughs) At the Indiana Jones Adventure, some of you guessed it. I like happy endings, don't you? You know, years ago, there was a radio program called Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story. Do you remember that? And every time he would tell this story in such a way that would just captivate my imagination. And you didn't know how the story was going to end until the very last. You'd have a punchline, and it would always be a surprise ending, and it was just delightful. And he would always end with the same words, you know what they are, and now you know the rest of the story, right? Good day. (laughs) Well, Life isn't like Disneyland, is it? You don't see light at the end of every tunnel, maybe. And some tragedy has crushed you, actually. Or maybe you've, you've had news of something that has kind of clouded your optimism that life will never be the same. That kind of news hit me when I was 27 years old. And I learned from one of the leading neurologists in the country that I had multiple sclerosis. The symptoms, tests all lined up. And I thought that my life, at least the life I wanted, was over. Or the kind of news that I received just two years ago when I received a phone call from my doctor with the words that no one would ever want to hear, you have cancer. 
Or the time I entered my house only to find that someone had entered my house before me and basically demolished it. It looked like he took a sledgehammer to it. There was debris everywhere. I mean, it was a mess. Well, the house of Israel was a mess too. Destruction was on the way. God was going to judge them. And here in the ending of Isaiah, we learn, is there, what is the rest of the story for Isaiah? I mean, is there light at the end of the tunnel for God's uh, nation? And first, Isaiah reminds them of who God is and why they were in this mess to begin with. So let's start with verse 1. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where could you possibly build a house for me? And where would my resting place be? My hand made all these things, and so they came into being. Well, what is God saying here? Well, at that time, in circulation, there were other ancient writings, and one of the ancient writings actually said that the idol Baal wanted to build a house for himself so he could have a resting place. Well, God here is countering this, saying, I am not like the other gods. You just don't fit me in with other gods in your worship practices. I don't fit, and you can't impress me, besides with something that I already own. What could you be thinking? Well, this is God's response, really, when anyone tries to bring him down to our level. You know, after the completion of the temple, Solomon had it right. He said this in 1 Kings. He says, But will God indeed live on the earth? Even heaven, the highest heavens, can't contain you, much less this temple that I have built. The temple is probably one of the greatest wonders in the world at the time. Worship, I think you'd agree with me, involves more than buildings, right? In fact, worship involves your whole life. What you think, what you say, what you do. Worship is your life. And when it comes to worship, God is very claustrophobic. If there's idols crowding in, what does God do? You know, sometimes I talk with people who confess to me that God is distant, <laughs> you know, like he's on vacation or <laughs> like he's on lockdown or something, that God seems far away. Well, one reason why God is distant is when we try to control him and fit him in to our mold, you know, fit him in to the, to the convenience of our lives. The heavens can't contain him, right? But know this, that when, while the infinite God is far greater than any buildings, right, he fits perfectly into our hearts. And that's the scary part, really, when you think about it. Here you have the timeless, all-knowing, infinite God 
the creator of the ends of the earth, when we give him control over our lives, who knows, right? What's going to happen? He'll begin to transform you in ways that you maybe had never planned. Well then, Israel thought, you know, if we can't impress God with our buildings, surely we can impress him with our worship, our sacrifices back then. We can actually have, let's tell you what they, they thought, let's do a variety show of sacrifice. We'll, we'll include sacrifices that God likes and then the idols as well. Well, what do you think God thought about that? <laughs> let's read on. One person slaughters an ox, another kills a person. One person sacrifices a lamb, another breaks a dog's neck. One person offers a grain offering, another offers pig's blood. One person offers incense, another praises an idol. All these have chosen their own ways and delight in their abhorrent practices. Breaking a dog's neck, offering pig's blood, even killing a person were all common practices of idol worship. And God says to them, your worship is no different to me than idol worship. They were going through the motions. They were doing some of the right things, but mixing in all of their other idol practices as well, and it polluted everything. Well, so God judged them. Assyria came down from the north, wiped out the northern kingdoms. And then in 586 B.C., about 100 years later, Babylon comes in and wipes out the southern kingdom, flattens the temple. And I, I wonder, did they ever learn? Did they ever stop worshiping idols then? Well, let's read on in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel writes at the time of of Babylon during this exile. He writes this, and he's talking to the Lord about this. He says, so my people come to you in crowds, and they sit in front of you, and they hear your words, but they don't obey them. Their mouths go on passionately, but their hearts pursue dishonest prophets. And other versions say greedy gain. Another version actually said their hearts go after their own covetousness. So, in place of wood and stone and metal idols, what did they do? They replaced it with greed and lust. Actually, unbridled greed. Their problems continued only with different idols. Let me ask you, are greed and lust a form of idol worship? Well, absolutely. In fact, with greed and lust, that person can carry those around, right, in their hearts wherever they go. The idols never leave you. Well, greed and lust, idol worship, is going on today, isn't it? In hearts, in homes. You see, idols are anything that we place above God. It's, it's idols or anything that we elevate in our lives from a preference 
to a demand. I must have this. I must have this job. I must have this promotion. I must have this person in my life. I must have this thing, this house, this car, this bank account. I must have this or I'll never be happy. That demand, that becomes our idol. And that's going on all around us today. And what happens? You know, when we finally get whatever it is we're obsessing about, the happiness comes, sure, but it's temporary. And then it fades and emptiness floods, you know, right back in. So how do you get off this merry-go-round? You know, how do you get off the greed and lust merry-go-round anyway? Well, listen, God knows what is best for you. He made you, and your heart won't find rest until it rests in God. He has something planned for you far better than you could ever create or buy or manipulate. Verse 2, the last part, says this, and this is really the answer that he gives to his people on what true worship, what authentic, genuine, heartfelt worship really looks like. It's this. I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. Well, first... In order to have a heart of true worship, cultivate a heart of humility. Humility here, it means to be poor and needy, even destitute. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the same idea. It means to be spiritually bankrupt. It describes a beggar who is totally incapable of satisfying his own needs. One who is utterly helpless. Listen, God doesn't look to the people who pride themselves in riches, does he? He doesn't look to the arrogant. No, he doesn't look to the, to the ones in control. He doesn't look to the smart ones. No, who does he look to? He looks to the poor in spirit. He looks to the ones who are merciful, the ones who are meek, the ones who are hungry for God, the ones who are persecuted, the ones who love peace. Those who are who he looks to. David, after a man after God's own heart, described himself this way. He said, this poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him, and he saved him out of all of his trouble. That's humility. You see, pride and arrogance look down, but humility looks up. In Luke 18, Jesus described it this way. He said, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I, thank you, I'm not like other people, greedy and righteous adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, 
that's standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but he kept beating his chest. He's saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went to his house justified rather than the other. Because the uh, one who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now here you have two of the most opposite figures in Jewish culture, right? One of them was the best, the best at doing church. Notice the most common word that he used to describe himself. It was the word I, right? Showing his tremendous preoccupation with himself. He actually thought that God was impressed with him. But the great deception here in this Pharisee is that he actually went home thinking he was righteous. But the other, on the other hand, the, ta the tax collector goes home being declared righteous by the living God. Isaiah 57, 15 says this, for the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, he says this, I live in a high and holy place with who? With the lowly, with the oppressed, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the oppressed. You see, God lives with the lowly, the humble, because that's his nature too. As, as ironic as it may sound, so if you humble yourself, Jesus actually said this. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For what? For I am meek and lowly, and you shall find rest to your souls. You know, if you humble yourself, God will be there to greet you. What's more, he'll fill you with peace and rest that you never have known before. You know, being humble also means that we are also humble with each other, right? Once a fourth grade teacher introduced a new game to his class. It was called Balloon Stomp. And like the name implies, a balloon was tied to the leg of every single kid in the class. And the instructions were given that the object of the game was to retain your own balloon and have that be the last one standing, right? And everybody else's balloons were supposed to be popped. So the signal was given to start. And as you can imagine, the fourth graders went at it with great enthusiasm. There were, there were fourth graders along the wall. They were just like wallflowers at a middle school dance, you know, protecting their balloons. But you know what? It was, they were vanquished just the same. Finally, seconds later, there was only one balloon left. And it was owned by, you guessed it, the most feared, most disliked kid in the class. Because you see, the, the object of the game was to win, and he did at any cost. You see, to win, you need to be rude, offensive, you know, to win at balloon stomp. <laughs> but the teacher then took that same game and he introduced it to another class. Only this class 
was composed entirely of special needs kids. Now, the, the same instructions were given. A balloon was tied to every kid's leg, and the signal was given to start, and the game proceeded very differently. Now, whether or not the kids got the instructions all correct, the one thing that they did understand that all the balloons were supposed to be popped. And so instead of viewing the students as the enemies, they viewed the balloon as the enemy. Instead of fighting with each other, they began helping each other pop each other's balloons. So it was. One little girl, she held her balloon down like, like a placeholder for a field goal kicker, while one little boy stomped it flat, and then he held out his balloon for her, where she stomped it flat. And this continued for several minutes until all of the balloons were popped. Everybody cheered. Everybody won. Now, who got it right? And who got it wrong? You see, in our world, we use control we even abuse power and authority and then justify the hurt we inflict on others because we're playing by the rules. Really, though, when we come into Christ's church, the rules change. It's a different kind of a game. We're there to serve him. And how do we do that? By elevating others, and humbling ourselves. And when we do that, everybody wins. 1 Peter 5, 5 says this. All of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud and he shows favor to the humble. Secondly, a true heart of worship means to submit your brokenness to God. Now, actually, the word submission here, it means broken, lame, disabled. It is used here to describe somebody who is aware of the damage caused by sin and knows they're incapable of doing anything about it. Isaiah, when he saw God, we just read this earlier, he said, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord. That's a great definition for this word. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And if you're broken today, it's like humility. God is there to greet you. His eyes are on you. He is near you, and he esteems you highly. And know you're not alone. Scripture says even that all creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, he said, but we ourselves, we groan within ourselves, awaiting the adoption, the redemption, of our bodies. 
So can anything good come from brokenness? Can it? Listen, it's been said, and it's so true, God never wastes a hurt. He declared long ago, like clay is in the hands of a potter, so are you in my hands. So what would you rather be? Would you rather be a vessel of your own design based on your limited creativity and knowledge and power? A vessel of, of limited use and fading value? Or would you rather be a vessel of, of God's design, of his unlimited creativity, his unlimited power, a vessel of unlimited use and eternal value? My mother was a potter. I grew up, while well, she was um, in the workshop, basically, making pottery. And countless times, I would either see or hear her downstairs making, getting, getting just a lump of clay, and even getting it ready to put on the wheel. She'd have to go through a process called wedging. Now, wedging is simply, you take a hunk of raw clay, you knead it, and then you slam it down on the ground. You knead it, and you slam it on the ground. You do this about 100 times to get the air bubbles out of the clay and actually get the physical part of the clay so you could work with it. Now, submitting to God, it means choosing Place your life into God's hands so he can just begin to work you and renew you and shape you to be who he wants you to be. Now, yes, that's going to involve pain. Yeah, that's going to involve hardship. It's going to involve trials. Question is, are you going to give him permission? Remember the guy that took a sledgehammer to my house? Well, his name is Dan. He's a friend of mine. He's a contractor by trade, and he is really skilled at what he does. I let him in to my house. He began demolishing my kitchen because we wanted the kitchen remodeled and everything old had to go. Now, was I bitter? Was I resentful? Did I blame him for the mess he was causing? Actually, I helped him. It's fun, you know, to demolish stuff. But no, I wasn't. Because it was a part of the plan. I gave him permission and helped him in the process. Together, we were working towards someday having a new kitchen. It was great. So how are you doing with responding to the brokenness in your own life? Let me ask you these questions. Would God break in you anything that would cause you to become the person he wants you to be? Would he take away from you anything that would bless you spiritually? Would he deprive you of anything that would build you up and edify and strengthen and build your character? Would he rob you of anything that was for your eternal good? Would he allow anything that wouldn't draw you closer to him and trust him more? No. 
You see, God who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He'll work in you and he'll keep working in you until the job is done. And he's very skilled at what he does. The question is, will you grant him permission? Will you partner with him in, the, in this project? Are you willing to have him demolish whatever it is in your life? Maybe it's your stubborn pride. Maybe it's your self-will. And as you do, as you um, cooperate with him, your outlook will completely change from bitterness and resentment and blame to optimism, even hope. Because genuine praise comes from a heart that is submitted to God. And that's what submission will do in your life. Finally, a heart of true worship, a heart that God esteems, is to tremble at God's word. Now, why the word tremble? I mean, why not read or, or study or memorize or meditate? Those are all good too. But why the word tremble? Because God wants us, when we hear, read, or whatever his word, it shakes us to our very core. It changes us. It transforms us. To tremble at God's word is to give him the rightful place in your life as the authority of your life and conduct. This is God's word. It's not God's suggestions or opinions. But we can be fooled so easily, can't we? Into thinking that we're hearing God's word. That's great. James said this, but he said, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any, he says, but if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man beholding his natural face in a mirror. But he beholds himself, and then he goes his way, and he forgets what kind of a man he was. But, but whoso looks, and he calls it the perfect law of freedom or liberty, and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in what he does. So tremble at his word, because it has the power to transform your life. Tremble at his word because it endures forever. Tremble at his word because his word is sharper than any two-edged sword and will pierce through to the very secrets of your heart. Tremble at his word because it will accomplish exactly what God intends for your life. Tremble at his word because it's a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Today, I no longer have multiple sclerosis. And as credible as that may seem, I cannot imagine that I would ever see the light at the end of the tunnel for that. And thank God for his mercy in my life after surgery and radiation, my last test, cancer test came back undetectable. Praise God. You know, I'm so thankful to the Lord for that. 
<laughs> and now you know the rest of my story. But looking back, what I, what I know now, what I didn't know then, I would have lived with more gratitude in the present and more hope for the future. Other than the other difficulties in my life remain. You don't get me wrong there. And they'll continue to the day I see Jesus. But maybe the brokenness is continuing in your own life. You know, maybe you don't see light yet at the end of your tunnel. Maybe God, God is preparing you for something very wonderful. And there is every reason to be grateful in the present and hopeful in the future. Why? Well, let's read on. Verses 22 and 3 say, For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will remain before me, this is the Lord's declaration, so your offspring and your name will remain. All humanity, that's you and me, will come to worship me from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, says the Lord. Believers, we are in for one wonderful time of worship, never-ending worship in heaven with the Lord. 800 years later, the Apostle John had the same vision from God. He, he said it this way. He said, and then I heard a loud voice from the throne said, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Right. These things are faithful and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the water of the spring of life. And the one who conquers will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Hear that? Death, grief, pain, sorrow, gone. And now we know the rest of the story. Brother and sister in Christ, knowing that should fill us with confidence and hope. And yes, optimism for the future. All promised, he said, to the one who conquers. And that begs a question. Who is the one who conquers? Is it the one who prophesies? Is it the one who does many wonderful works in his name? The one, the one he said that, that does these things, Jesus says, many of those people, I will have to say, depart from me, I never knew you. No, the one who conquers is the one who is humble, the one who is submissive in spirit, and the one who trembles at his word. You see, the rest of the story really has two endings. And we declare the whole counsel of God here. Here's verse 8. But the cowards, the faithless, detestable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, 
which is the second death. Listen, God never intended that anyone should perish, but that all would come to eternal life in him. These words may be a wake-up call for you. Actually, maybe a shake-up call. Perhaps today God is speaking to your heart saying, you've been pursuing idols, you've been mixing God in with, with other things in your life. You're trying to fit God in out of convenience and you're just going through the motions. You're just playing games at doing church and you know it. The bottom line, like Israel, you need to be reborn. And God's word says this. He says, this is the first thing that you need to do to apply God's word to your life is this. For Jesus said, for God so loved the world, insert your name there, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why? See, his words are life, eternal life. And God is speaking to you, pay attention. Believe in Jesus, humble yourself, and trust him today, let's pray. Father, I'm praying on behalf of people, Father, who may not ever have made that step to believe in you, declare you as their savior. Father, may, may this be the time where they would say, Lord, I need you in my life. I'm stopped playing games. I'm tired of that merry-go-round of lust and greed. I want to follow you. Please forgive me, dear Lord. I want to receive you into my life. Be my savior. I want to follow you and you alone. And Lord, maybe there's others here in our church family that says, you know, I've been, I've been on a merry-go-round too. I might be saved, yes, but Lord, there's so... I want to live in humility. I want to elevate others and humble myself. I don't want to have to control things anymore like, like I think I have to. I want your word to be the priority in my life so I can really tremble at it. Lord, we commend ourselves to you, gladly submit to you in Jesus' precious name.